Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second Positivity Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we are talking to Alison Roger, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University College of London and a consultant in infectious diseases and HIV at the Royal Free Hospital in London. Her research interests include reducing rates of new HIV infections, HIV self-testing, assessing the cost-effectiveness of HIV prevention, and improving the long-term health of people with HIV. She was lead author of the Partner HIV Transmission Studies that revealed with conclusive evidence that people with HIV on treatment and with an undetectable viral load cannot, under no condition, transmit the virus. Her findings are widely considered as one of the most significant medical breakthroughs of the 21st century. In her own words, she stated that this powerful message of you is you, undetectable is untransmittable, can help end the HIV pandemic by preventing HIV transmission and tackling the stigma and discrimination that many people with HIV face. Alison currently leads the Pantheon Research Program that looks at how HIV self-testing could improve HIV diagnosis rates. Professor Alison Roger, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the podcast. I'm very excited to dive into some hot topics with you today around HIV and AIDS. We live in very exciting times. Mm. I had a conversation with Peter Piot, the founder of UNAIDS yesterday, and he was saying that for the first time in his life, he is hopeful that we will find a vaccine for uh, HIV, which is very good news for all the people that don't have HIV. For people like myself that have HIV, obviously we're more interested in a cure, but apparently that may be a bit more challenging after all. Now, there are other, other exciting things happening as well, and I want to talk about that. You recently presented a study called Partner 2, which has provided conclusive evidence that people living with HIV under treatment cannot transmit the virus. Now, this study was built on other studies, such as Partner 1, also headed by yourself. That one was built on uh, the HIV Prevention Trials Network, 
on opposite subtract. And then the first one was the Swiss statement in 2008. Now, could you elaborate a little bit for our audience on the specifics of your study and how it's been different and building on the other uh, studies that I spoke about? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we've known for some time that if you're on treatment, you can reduce your risk of passing the infection on. But we didn't know quite how low that risk was. So we thought it was quite important to find that out. So you're right, there have been other studies like the 052 study, which was really the landmark study in this field. But the thing about 052 is that people use condoms. And what we wanted to do was to uh, recruit people into our study who'd chosen not to use condoms for whatever reason, although we obviously said there's a risk of transmission, you should use condoms. So we thought, what if we just look at the impact of anti-HIV treatment on its own? So we recruited uh, zero different couples into our study That means one's HIV positive, one's HIV negative. And we started the study in 2010. And so the first phase, partner one, which you mentioned, recruited between 2010, 2014, and that was people who had heterosexual sex as well as gay men. But when we got to the end of partner one and we published that in JAMA, we'd really good evidence that we thought the risk was zero. There were zero linked transmissions, but we didn't have quite enough follow up in gay men to be really, really sure of the result. And we thought this was such an important thing to find out. We continued the study as partner two. So we finished partner two in 2018. And by that time, we'd got almost 1600 years of follow up, which is a huge, it's a massive study. And uh, the couples within the study had sex 76,000 times without using condoms. That's a huge number. It's a huge number. It's massive. So if the positive partner had not been on HIV treatment and not had a suppressed viral load, we would have expected about 500 transmissions to have happened. But we got zero. And we know that there were zero linked transmissions because we compared the viruses in the negative partners who did become positive and the positive partners. And we know by comparing them that it didn't come from their positive partner on treatment. So it must DNA. come from some, someone else. Yeah, we do genetic sequencing of parts of the virus. Okay. So we conclusively know that the viruses were not related. And the, the, the negative men who became positive were very clear that they were in open relationships and they'd had sex with other people. Yeah. So we now know that there is zero risk. And to say that as a scientist is quite something because Absolutely. you can't prove a negative. But we're very, very clear that actually it's zero risk. How significant is this really and like the medical implications of this? I think it's really significant. I think actually the, the implications are more around tackling stigma and discrimination. Uh-huh which I think is something that I hope the partner results will do. I think they should encourage early testing and treatment, hopefully. Perhaps encourage people uh, to get tested to know their status, because we know if you go on to treatment, you have a normal life expectancy. And now we're saying you're sexually non-infectious. It's as if the virus doesn't exist. It's a massive difference. We also hope it will combat criminalisation. I mean, we know that many people are imprisoned, including in the US, for assumptions of risk that the partner data set, I mean, disproves. So we're hoping that we'll have an impact in that area as well. So whether HIV positive people and their partners choose to use condoms or not, just just to have that knowledge that actually you are sexually non-infectious, I think is quite a powerful message. And obviously underpins the U equals U message as well, yeah. disseminates that message widely, which I think has just been a remarkable campaign led by Bruce Rickman. The, a lot of stigma is driven by the fear of being exposed. Now, how mm-hmm. hopeful are you that your findings will actually help to transform public opinion and, and bring those attitudes more in line with medical evidence. Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, we, we know that medical that public knowledge lags behind medical research. We're really bad as scientists at communicating this message, which I think is why what you're doing is so important. Which is why when we published the Lancet paper, yeah. we, we, we linked with uh, Bruce Rickman and, and uh, Prevention Access. We linked with the Terence Higgins Trust in the UK and we tried to get the message out. And we actually succeeded. I think it went global. In 24 hours, everyone was talking about partner, everyone was talking about the fact that you can't transmit the virus if you're suppressed. 
And what we hoped in the in the UK, we had a campaign in the mid the mid eighties. I don't know if you know about it. It was sort of tombstones and icebergs and don't die of ignorance, and that has a lasting impact yeah, on population absolutely. consciousness. But we just hope by moving the conversation forward, updating people and saying, you know, this is two thousand nineteen. You can live a normal life. You're sexually non-infectious. Really, you know, you have to destigmatize HIV. So we're hoping that it moves the conversation. It's incredible forward. how hardwired stigma yes. really is. Yes, absolutely. And also the auto stigma, because I mean, I'm HIV positive, and I, yeah. I ran away from the disease for so long. Yeah. It's just mind blowing how, when you realize, you know, how insignificant that really is. I mean, it, it is mm-hmm. significant to my life, but once you get over that, it's it's a whole new life it's just chapter a opens. Small, yeah. tiny, tiny exactly. part of someone, and I think it's trying to put it into that place. Yeah. Um, and really say this is not a significant part of someone's yeah. life anymore. Exactly. Now, what I what I'd like to discuss as well. Some people may ask, okay, you is you, undetectable is really mm-hmm. and transmittable. But what does that really mean in terms of sexuality? Can we all have unsafe sex now? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really use the term unsafe. I kind of use condomless. So if you are HIV positive and you're on treatment and you're suppressed, you're protecting your partners in the best way possible. So you would obviously want to use condoms potentially for other reasons, that to prevent other STIs. Um, and also if you have sex with someone and you're not sure of their HIV status, you're not sure if they're on treatment. And when we saw that in the Partner 2 study, 15 men became HIV positive through having sex with other men yeah. outside their main relationship. Yeah. So I think it's part of a kind of prevention package. It's part of, you know, taking care of your sexual health. But it's giving you the knowledge that actually if you're on treatment and you're suppressed, you cannot transmit the HIV virus. You may choose to use the condoms for other reasons. Yeah. I think it is just part of a package really, isn't it? Yeah. And if you talk about uh, PrEP, yeah. uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, yes. it's part of the package. <laughs> like that, that means taking medicine, antiretroviral medicine, before you actually engage in sexual intercourse. Mm. Now, it has... Um, Proven, shown to effectively reduce mm. HIV, HIV transmission uh, with uh, heterosexual men and women, men who have sex with men and also drug abusers. Now, the risk of transmission can be reduced up to 92%, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. I think it depends if you manage to take the tablets as prescribed. And we know that um, the levels of drug, drug in the body correlate very much with the level of protection you get. And if you take the tablets as prescribed, you can push it very, very high. I think it's a hugely effective intervention. And actually, the 50 men who became positive in the partner study obviously would have benefited from it. So yes, I think it's part of a prevention package. And if you're HIV negative and you have sex with someone who is not on treatment and is not suppressed, then potentially, yeah. you know, you should be using PrEP just to prevent infection. Yeah. But there are some concerns uh, about PrEP. People that say that it could lead to unsafe sex, which could also increase other STIs, sexually transmitted uh, infections. Mm-hmm. There's also resistance to the drugs and the effects of the drugs, right? In a lot of countries, there's still a lot of debate about the full rollout of PrEP. What is your opinion on PrEP as a preventive strategy for... So I think, um, I think PrEP is safe, and we um, know it's safe, and we know that from multiple studies. We know you have to manage it. If you're taking PrEP, then you obviously need to be reviewed every three months. You need to get HIV tested so that you can pick up early infections. You need to get your renal function checked at baseline. And we know there's some key populations that perhaps, you know, young gay men, perhaps, you know, when you're laying down bone density in your late teens, something to be aware of. But it's, it's a very safe intervention so I think it's part of the prevention package and anyone who's at risk of HIV infection should have access to PrEP. There was a study from Australia which looked at STIs in uh-huh. gay men. 
before they went on to PrEP, during PrEP and afterwards. And a lot of the increase in uh, STIs that we see in people in PrEP is because they're being tested regularly. And we also know that um, a lot of the STIs were in a small group of men on PrEP and that half of the men on PrEP got no other, no STIs. So I think it's identifying who's potentially at greater risk, perhaps having yeah. chats about situations where they may be at risk of other STIs. And as I say, it's it's part of a package. But to prevent someone getting HIV, I mean, I, I know we say that it's um, normal life expectancy, you're sexually non-infectious, but I think if you can avoid getting it, then that is a good thing. So I think Absolutely, certainly people yeah. who have access to PrEP should have yeah. access. Now, in the UK, there's an estimated 101,600 people living with HIV, mm. of which 7,800 appear to be undiagnosed. Now, that's 7.5%. Isn't that a big number? It is. It's actually fallen in, in recent years. We have we do have issues, and we particularly have issues in people of um, black African ethnicity presenting late. So when your CD4 count has fallen <coughs> to under 200, and you're at greater risk of increased risk of, of, of death and also of more severe complications. So what we really need to do is, again, it's all about destigmatizing de HIV. Mm-hmm. It's People are so frightened in, in some population groups to get tested, but it's really trying to get the message out that actually if you get tested, you get on treatment, that, you know, it's really nothing nothing to fear. So I think the whole issue that you talked around about stigma and discrimination really is the reason why why we're seeing still late diagnosis. But it is improving some of the work I'm involved in at the moment is trying to make testing easier. So I'm quite interested yeah. in self-testing, rolling out self-testing. So I think, you know, there's, there's a niche. But I think the problem with HIV is that a lot of the key population groups often don't have access to basic services. I think mm. a it's lot a of... Problem, yeah. It's a massive problem globally in terms of, you know, a lot of punitive policies, practices. I mean, you know, if you're a gay man in certain countries, you know, you're criminalised just yeah. for loving so somebody of the same sex. So the whole thing is around, I think really just, I mean, it's just, it's a human rights issue. And until yeah. we actually fully address that, we're not going to have an effective response to the HIV yeah. epidemic. But a strategy to get everybody tested has proven difficult as well because of the fact that the virus is very difficult to detect at the initial stages, while that chance of transmission is high at the same time. It is, but, but our tests are so good now. If you're using the most modern tests, which sort of combine antibody and antigen, or if you do an, uh, an HIV RNA, then you can really detest the window. The window periods are very small. We know from current self-testing that they are slightly greater, but, you know, you can pick somebody up average about 28 days, which is really, you know, it's, it's very narrow. So, so I think you're absolutely right. The risk of transmission is quite high in the early stages, but you can pick people up quite early. It's more okay. getting people to test and repeat test. Now, in the, according to the National AIDS Trust, 97% of people in the UK on HIV treatment are undetectable, mm. which is very reassuring and empowering. But how feasible is it, is it really to get people who are on HIV treatment really undetectable, like 100%? Is that something feasible? It is. We've got very, very high levels in the UK. Yeah. So people much higher than said, 90% objective of the UN AIDS. Yeah, yeah, much higher, much higher than in the US as well, which, yeah. you know, there's got the, the, the latest, well, the data, so it's a couple of years old now, but only half of people who were on ART was suppressed. In the UK, we've got very, very high levels. We've still got a small group, and I think what we need to do is really focus our efforts on that group. I mean, people have very complicated lives, um, and it's really trying to support people to take treatment um, and to address the other areas, and it's something that I'm... um, becoming interested in because you talk about we've got very high levels of suppression but that's just one small aspect of someone's life we know that in people living with hiv in the uk there's very high levels of um, mental health issues very high levels of depression and anxiety a lot of people live in quite deprived circumstances and so i think unless you look at the whole person then you're not going to make improvements in terms of people's health and well-being which is really what you're looking for it's not just about suppressing the virus and I think the UNAIDS 1990 targets, there's a, a move to add a, a fourth 90, uh-huh. which is about 90% of people living with HIV suppressed. So you've done all the other things, but actually you're looking at 90% have good levels of health and well-being and good mental health. And I think that is where we really need to focus. 
What do you think does the mental health and the anxiety and depression numbers that are on the rise or are widespread, where does that come from? Because you would expect when a disease becomes chronic, like HIV, that these type of numbers would, would drop instead of increase, no? I think there's a sort of intersectional component. I think that it's not just it's not just living with HIV. It's I think there is still, unfortunately, there's still stigma about being a gay man or having HIV. Um, I think there are concerns about financial concerns. We know that from some of the studies we've done that people lack the money for basic needs. Um, I think there's 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 a lot of issues. Issues potentially stemming from childhood as well. I mean, growing up as a gay person or growing up in certain circumstances, a lot of trauma. I think we need to start looking at the whole person and not just going, you know, success is because we've suppressed the virus. And I think until we do that, then I think we really haven't done all that we can. I was uh, looking at the UNAIDS report in 2018. They talk about a prevention crisis. There has been an overemphasis on treatment at at the expense of prevention. Now, how would you look at this statement within the context of of the UK, because in the UK, numbers have dropped, as you said yourself. Mm -hmm. I think there was a 17% drop in new infections from 2017 to 16, and a 28% drop. Is that a prevention crisis in the UK, or is it going better? What what is that? Um, What's your opinion? I think access to PrEP has been a really important part of that. So we talk about combination prevention. We talk about increasing testing. So we've Mm -hmm. done getting people onto early treatment. We know the time between diagnosis and treatment. I mean, we, we run same day starting treatment, the same day that you're diagnosed. I think that's really important. I think PrEP has played a key role and there have been initiatives in the UK through Greg Owen and I Want PrEP Now. Max Portman was very influential in that movement, just giving access to generic PrEP to people Uh who needed it. I think that was hugely important. I wouldn't really describe it as a prevention crisis. I think we're doing quite well, but as I say, it's important to look at the whole person and their needs and their experiences and barriers and facilitators um, rather than just focusing on the virus. Yeah, Peter was saying yesterday, nobody talks about condoms today. (laughs) I talk about condoms. Uh, (laughs) I talk a lot about condoms (laughs) because it's part of a package. It's using what what suits you and sometimes you might use condoms, sometimes you might use PrEP, sometimes you might use both if you want to prevent sort of other STIs. So I I think it's giving people the the knowledge and the skills and the range of options that are available to them and then working with them to choose the best option for them. But yeah. I'd like to talk about funding, funding, funding which is a big issue. It's Peter talked issue. about it as well. Uh, Deborah Gold of the National AIDS yeah. Trust has fears about funding cuts. Yeah. Now, we know that there shouldn't, I mean, there must be no um, funding cuts for HIV because it's such a big problem. And if you fund, if you decrease funding, it could have de- devastating effect, especially on several countries that rely on international assistance for the domestic HIV responses. What is your opinion on this funding? Are you fearful? And what is your message to international donors? It's not over. There's a lot of hyperbole around at the moment about the end of AIDS. Some of the headlines when we did Partner 2 was, you know, it's finished, AIDS is finished. It's not. It's a long way from being finished. I think we have to continue our efforts. I think... It um, will be with us for generations. Yeah, well, it will be, but we're also not making an impact in terms of the number of new infections. We know that we have to redouble our efforts. But as I said before, I think a lot of it is about human rights. I think as a, a lot of it is about destigmatizing, decriminalizing the key populations at risk of HIV. And I think until we do that globally, then we're not really going to I think it hampers the an effective HIV response. So yeah, I think I think we just need to keep going. Pour money more pour mm. more money in rather than reduce it. Yeah. Now with your recent findings, there is a new spark among among the HIV positive community that the end of AIDS may be inside. Now you've said that we still have a long way to go to get everybody tested and treated. But if we get global coverage, then we could well be on our way to eliminate the virus. We, we have the tools. We have the tools. We know that we can make a significant impact on on the virus in terms of elimination. But we need to get the tools to the people that need them. And we need to make sure that everybody is included in the HIV response. 
Um, and is it I feasible? think that's the important thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm an optimist. I always am. So yes, I think so it is feasible. If you would put a time frame on that, what would you say? Oh, I, I don't know. It really depends. I mean, it, I think it's difficult at the moment. I think uh, we can see, I mean, I can only speak for, for Europe. We can see the rise of the far right. We can see we're, we've got issues with Brexit. We have got politics in the US that are unsavoury. And so I think at the moment it's never been more important. I think it's created quite a hostile environment, particularly for migrants, particularly for key and marginalised populations. And I think we really have to to combat that very clearly. And I, th- I think until we take a human rights approach to the HIV response, Absolutely, then I yeah. think it's it's going to be difficult. But no, I'm an optimist. I think we have the tools. I think the partner study was important. All the other studies are important. We just have to redouble our efforts, I think. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you a more personal question. It's uh, it's related to myself. Now, I got infected in South Africa by, by a woman. Mm-hmm. And recently I had a conversation with a woman who is very vocal on social media about the fact that she says that it's very unlikely that women pass on the virus to men. She almost speaks about, uh, not zero, but almost zero. And it got me a little taken aback because I told her, like, look, I got infected by a woman. And yeah, I wanted to know a little bit more about that because I, kn- I know that the transmission percentage of women transmitting the virus to men is much lower than, than vice versa. But it is not zero because otherwise I wouldn't have been infected, right? Could you elaborate a little bit on this? Sure. I mean, it's, it's actually quite important. So it, I think it's important to remember that even in the absence of HIV treatment. It's not an absolute event. So the highest risk for transmission we know is um, having receptive anal sex with ejaculation. And that's about, I mean, this is all average. It's about one in 49. So it's not a one in one. It's not an absolute event. If you're insertive, the risk is less. If you're a woman um, having heterosexual sex, not anal sex, vaginal sex, then the risk is even less. It's estimates sort of one in 13, 1400. So it is less, but we know that you can transmit as a woman. Um, that's just a scientific fact if you are not on treatment and you have a high viral load. So, um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say it, it's much, much less, but but I, it's not certainly not zero. Although if you're on treatment and your viral load is suppressed, then it is. Okay, thank so. you. Well <laughs> so now that your studies have been published, the partner mm. two, what is your focus for the future and where do you think the research in regards to HIV and AIDS should be, should be going and focused on? Personally, as I said, I'm interested in... Uh, making HIV testing easier. So I'm interested in HIV self-testing. I'm also interested in mental health and people living with HIV. I'm thinking I'm interested in a kind of more comprehensive approach to HIV care. So not just focusing on the virus, but focusing on the, the wider determinants of health and the social determinants of health. I think I think HIV, I think it would be fantastic if we had cure and we had vaccine. And obviously the efforts have to continue in these areas. But I think it's rollout, it's trying to destigmatize, it's rollout of testing, early access to treatment. I think these are the key areas and redoubling our efforts. And then we really could make an impact for the next generation. It'd be lovely to have an HIV or an almost HIV free generation coming yeah. through. You have a last message for people living with HIV, Alison. I think it's been transformed. I think it's trying to lay to rest the legacy of the last 30 years. I think there's a lot of self-directed stigma, which I'm hoping with, with all the advances in the area that people can lay that to rest. I think if you're, if you're diagnosed, you're on treatment, it really is almost as if you don't have the virus. And I think people need to try and free themselves from that concept and just lay that awful legacy to rest and just move on, move on with life. That's a brilliant message. Thank okay. you so much. Thank it's you for right. joining us on the podcast. Alison. Thank you. You're welcome. So yes, a huge thank you to Alison Roger for coming on this podcast and for sharing her views and insights with our audience. Once again, this has been an amazing conversation with a person who has been paving the path for what has become globally accepted as you as you, undetectable as untransmittable. An HIV-positive person on treatment with an undetectable viral load cannot transmit the virus. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter and let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels and on our website www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you and so does the world. Thank you so much.